Good afternoon. How we pay for health care is probably the most important question uh, when it comes to health policy. Per person, the United States generally spends twice as much as other industrialized nations on health care. And how we pay for health care dramatically influences how much we spend and whether we're getting any health for the money that we're spending. My name is Michael Cannon, and I'm our Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. And I want to thank all of you who braved the humidity and the construction to be here today, all of you who are watching this uh, forum on the Internet, and all of you who are watching this uh, at home on C-SPAN for being here to discuss a new Cato Institute book uh, that wrestles with the issue of how we pay for health care in the U.S. and proposes a pretty dramatic change in course. That book is this one, titled Crisis of Abundance, Rethinking How We, uh, Rethinking how we Pay for Health Care. The author is Dr. Arnold Kling, an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute. Dr. Kling has authored a number of books, is an MIT-trained economist, but is perhaps best known for tearing up the blogosphere from his various perches at the Library of Economics and Liberty, Tech Central Station, and the Cato Institute's own blog, Cato at Liberty. Betwe um, between getting his PhD in economics and his career in public policy, he also uh, dabbled in entrepreneurship for a little while. Crisis of Abundance is Dr. Kling's first book about health policy, and I want to give you a sense of, uh, of how it's been received so far. Personally, I received the book very well. Uh, the reason is that Dr. Kling's writing style is really an editor's dream, uh, because uh, although he's an economist through and through, he does not write like one. The substance of the book uh, has been even better received. When I had, a, I had a copy of the manuscript and I asked our chairman at the Cato Institute, Bill Niskanen, to, to review it, he reviewed it, he handed it back to me, and he said, this should be required reading for anyone who wants to have an intelligent discussion about health policy. Now, moving outside of the Cato Institute, we were pleased to learn that the educational arm of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce selected Crisis of Abundance as one of the ten books that drive the debate in Washington. It was the only book on health policy to make that list and the first that that organization purchased and sent to the CEOs and Washington acolytes that make up its board of directors. And not bad for a book that proposes cutting government health spending by as much as two-thirds. But the simplest praise uh, that the book has received came from a blogger and George Mason University professor named Tyler Cowan. Uh, professor Cowan wrote, The Crisis of, Abund Crisis of Abundance, quote, is one of the most important books written on health care. But certainly there must be some fault in Dr. Kling's uh, observations and proposals, which is why we invited our two guests to be here with us today. Uh, Sebastian Malaby is a columnist and member of the editorial board of the Washington Post since 1999. And having grown up in the UK and worked as a correspondent all over the world, he brings an international perspective to his writings on America's health care troubles. Jason Furman also earned his PhD in economics in Boston, but from Harvard. Since then, he has advised President Clinton and presidential candidate John Kerry on health policy. He is currently a visiting lecturer at NYU and a senior fellow at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. And he's also something of an iconoclast in the center-left coalition, um, having the temerity to defend Walmart as, being, uh, as doing more to help the poor than most, anti uh, the most government anti-poverty programs. So what's going to happen now is I'm going to sit down and stop talking, and uh, Dr. Kling will t tell us some, a little bit about his book, and then our guests will provide their thoughts on, uh, on the book. And uh, Dr. Kling will have a chance to respond. And then after that, I'll invite you all to join us upstairs in the Winter Garden where you, uh, for lunch and uh, where you can also purchase copies of Crisis of Abundance. Dr. Kling.
Thank you. I like to wander around, uh, but I, I feel somewhat restrained by having the microphone here. Um, I'll, but so I'll, if I start to wander too much, somebody uh, like signal me to stand still or something. Uh, I also dislike podiums. I s- spoke once in Minnesota where everyone is Sven and over six feet tall, and the podium was made for them, and I spent the whole time peeking from <laughs> side to side. Uh, this was just after I'd taken a course in public speaking, which they said, you know, the environment in which you speak is very important. That was not the best environment for me. Um, okay, thanks, Michael. Uh, I, I don't think you mentioned that the audience will get to do Q&A, but I assume that that's true. And uh, I noticed uh, from some of the names that I recognize in the audience that we have a pretty high-powered audience as well as two very uh, high-powered panelists here. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, this is the Hayek Auditorium, and part of Hayek's view of the world, the way I think of it, is that good economic performance rests on good institutions like free markets and constitutional restraints on government power. Those institutions, in turn, rest on popular beliefs. And so you could say a, a Hayekian justification for crisis of abundance is that it is an attempt to influence people's beliefs about health care so that we could ha- have better institutions and ultimately better performance in health care policy. Four beliefs that I would like to, uh, to correct about health care policy are these. Uh, first, the belief that we can uh, relieve the stress on our financial system in health care without any change in medical decision-making. I believe that's wrong. The second belief that's wrong is that you don't need to do cost-benefit analysis in health care. So, you know, people say, well, gee, people don't get health care unless they need it. Why do you need cost-benefit analysis? And that belief, the belief that you don't need cost-benefit analysis is wrong. The third belief that's wrong is the belief that the best way to pay for health care for people under 65 is to expand our existing forms of health insurance. And the fourth belief that's wrong is that the best way to pay for health care for people over 65 is Medicare. So let me walk through th- those, uh, those four things. Uh, there are a lot of facts and figures in Crisis of Abundance. But I want you to keep in mind two of them specifically for this, uh, for this talk. The first fact is that over the past 30 years, the share of our national income devoted to health care has roughly doubled from about 8% of GDP to about 16% of GDP. The second fact to keep in mind is that nowadays about 85% of personal health care spending is paid for by third parties, that is either by government or by private insurance. So we are about 85% insulated from facing the cost of our medical procedures. And my point about relieving the financial stress on our healthcare system, that financial stress comes from the large increase that we uh, that's underway in the share of our national income devoted to spending. That's, w- that's what's causing the stress in our, in our health care finance system. That, in turn, is being caused by uh, an increase in utilization of health care services, and in particular what I call premium medicine, that is uh, specialists and advanced technology in medical care. That's what's driving that 
increase in spending. And we cannot relieve that stress on the financial system uh, and maintain the current context for medical decision-making, that context being that Americans have relatively uninhibited access to medical services. That is, there is no government saying there will only be so much supply of this kind of service, so much supply of that kind of service. Uh, I just noticed a story, I don't know how true it is, that I think it came out of the Daily Telegraph, that in the UK some hospitals were getting letters saying that they were not allowing patients to wait long enough for certain services. They needed to wait longer. Well, we're not trying to increase waiting times in the United States. We have relatively uninhibited access to medical services, but we also have this 85% insulation from cost. And as long as you have both of those, you're not going to be able to relieve the stress on our healthcare finance system. Which brings us to the topic of cost effectiveness. If Americans were making choices about medical procedures that were cost effective, and we were confident of that, then doubling our share of national income spent on health care would be a good thing. We'd be happy about it. But there's a lot of suspicion that we are not using medical care cost effectively. Uh, Just an example from a couple weeks ago, the New York Times had a story about a small town in Ohio where the rate of angioplasties far exceeds that anywhere else. And it was triple the rate of nearby Cleveland, Ohio. And the article insinuates that these angioplasties are being done mostly for the benefit of a particular cardiology practice in that town and not necessarily for the benefit of consumers. But the article is very careful to say that we really don't know what the most cost-effective approach is for these heart patients, but there's a suspicion that perhaps with using medications and without doing surgery, we could perhaps do just as well uh, at much lower cost. And if you look at the health system as a whole, or the the world as a whole, uh, the United States in some ways is like that little town in Ohio. Uh, Relative to the rest of the world, we are an outlier in our use of uh, expensive medical procedures and yet we cannot be confident that we're using those cost effectively. And in fact, there's a lot of research which suggests that Americans make extravagant use of medical procedures that have high costs and low benefits. And so we need to introduce cost effectiveness into medical decision making. Well, so far, everything I've said is apolitical. Apolitical in in two senses. One sense, the politicians aren't interested in it. Uh, And in the more general sense that Health care policy analysts on both sides of the aisle uh, have come to that conclusion that that we cannot restrain uh, medical spending without doing something about medical decision-making and that we need more cost-effectiveness in medical decision-making. Again, people on both sides of the aisle come to that. But now things diverge. Uh, The left would say that the way to introduce cost-effectiveness analysis and bring down uh, unnecessary health care spending uh, is through government and having government make more decisions about the types of health care we have. And those of us on the right say that the person, that the people to bring cost effectiveness analysis into health care are individual consumers and we ought to remove some of the insulation from consumers and have them confront more of the, the cost of their own health care and bring cost effectiveness to bear. And so that brings up my third point, the issue of insulation. That is, if we're 85% infl- 
insulated from the cost of our medical procedures, we don't have the incentive to obtain cost-benefit information or to use it if we obtained it, if it were available. So we need to change our thinking about what constitutes good health insurance for people under 65. And let me talk about real insurance. Think of, think of fire insurance. And insurance is characterized by you pay a low premium, you rarely make a claim, and when you do make a claim, it's for a significant amount of money that otherwise would have represented a serious financial setback. Now think about what we call health insurance. The premiums are high. They're often disguised because of the employer contribution, but premiums are very high in health insurance. You're making claims all the time, and the claims are often for trivial amounts. A friend of mine will brag to me about her health insurance because it pays for her eyeglasses. But if she had to pay for her own eyeglasses, that would not represent a significant financial setback. So the need in health care for health insurance is for illnesses that are going to cost a lot of money. And typically that's over a period of several years. It doesn't, you're, the, an expensive illness t doesn't just stop at, the, at uh, December 31st. So it, illnesses that can cost tens of thousands of dollars over a period of years are what represent the insurance need. And so what we should be looking for in health, in health insurance is insurance policies that take care of that need and reduce the insulation for other smaller expenses. Finally, for people over 65 and Medicare. Medicare faces tens of trillions of dollars in unfunded liability. That is the gap between what we're promising future Medicare recipients and the taxes that we expect to collect. So you could say that Medicare is the fiscal equivalent of the Titanic, and that unfunded liability is the iceberg that we all know it's headed toward, um, but we're sort of reluctant to change course, to say the least. So what should we have instead of Medicare? Well, if you go back to think about, suppose you had just turned 65 yesterday. Then between now and the end of your life, the medical expenses that you would incur on average would be about $100,000. That's not $100,000 per year. That's cumulative between age 65 and the end of your life. You will incur on average about $100,000 in expenses. So from an individual point of view, to make it sound, what you need to do, what we need to encourage people, let's say someone age 30, to do between age 30 and age 65 is accumulate over those 35 years or so $100,000 in savings so that they can pay for their medical expenses. Then on top of that, because a few people will pay way more than $100,000 because they'll have unusually expensive uh, illnesses, you have to have a form of insurance that will kick in that will... Uh, put a ceiling on the amount of uh, medical expenses that you have to pay for on your own. So that's what we need to do to replace Medicare. So let me recap. There are these uh, four beliefs I'm trying to influence, I'm trying to get people to understand that our, the, the troubles in our health care finance system can only be solved if we change the way medical decisions are made. We should change those decisions to be include more cost-benefit analysis uh, in those decisions so that we make, uh, we, we consume, are less inclined to make extravagant use of medical procedures that have high costs and low benefits, that we need to 
uh, change our concept of insurance for people under 65, and we need to uh, change uh, from Medicare to a system that has more personal saving and then insurance as a backup to that. Um, so those beliefs, going back to Hayek, I think when Hayek first uh, published his works, they were not as well received as, as they ultimately came to be. And uh, I guess I, I can say I hope that the ideas in Crisis of Abundance follow a similar trajectory in that they become more accepted over time. Thank you. Um. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me here today and for giving me a free copy of the book. For the rest of you, $22 is a small price to pay for um, ideas about how to make the health system better. And this book, I think, has a great um, diagnosis and discussion of the issues in healthcare, which is basically the first half of it. And it's the first two points Arnold just made in terms of relieving strain without changes in our health system and that you can't think of health as a necessity that you can't approach without cost-benefit analysis. The fact that people in Minneapolis get one-fifth the care of people in Miami tells you health isn't some necessity. You can scale up or down what you spend on health, and you can look at cost-benefit in doing that. Um, the second half of the book, if you want to save yourself time, um, you might even be willing to skip it because um, it comes up with a set of policy recommendations that I find a little bit of a non sequitur and some of them may be moving in the wrong direction. So I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about that, a little bit about how to, you know, I think better ways to take some of the important insights that Arnold has and how, how I might um, apply them. Um, first of all, the prerequisite for thinking about our health system is to spend a few minutes in awe of the tremendous accomplishments it's made for us and the tremendous benefits that we get from it. Um, just look from 2000 to 2005. We hear a lot, premiums up 73%, not adjusted for inflation um, over that period of time. Well, what are you getting? In people's heads, there's this idea that you're just paying more for the same old health care. Um, you're paying more, but you're paying more for better health care. The period life expectancies, according to the Social Security Administration, the data are preliminary, so you don't want to take them to the bank. Other people are living an extra six months longer now compared to what life expectancy was in the year 2000. That's worth an extra six months of life, if you're a crass economist, is worth about $50,000. Or if you annualize it, it's worth about $2,500 a year. We bought that extra benefit relatively cheaply. Obviously, it's more complicated than that in terms of the timing and the relationship between health spending and what you're getting. But we are getting a tremendous amount from our health spending, and a number of papers have found this. Looking at micro-procedures, David Cutler and his co-authors, $7 in gains for every dollar spent on heart attacks, $6 for every dollar spent on low birth weight babies, and then at a macro level, um, two important papers by Murphy and Topol and Hall and Jones. Um, Hall and Jones, under a wide range of parameters, find that if anything, we are spending too little on health care in this country right now, not even thinking about the uninsured and assuming that at the margin we get very little, that we're basically practicing so-called flat-of-the-curve medicine. When you parameterize it, they find that we would be better off spending more money on health care and less money on cars and CDs and iPods and whatever else it is that we, we spend the rest of our, our money on. So the first thing you need to start with is an understanding that we 
get a lot for the money we spend on health care. Now, you don't want to then walk home at the end of that and say everything is great and everything is perfect. Far from it. And in particular, the three issues I would then go to from there are, number one, how do we make sure everyone has this health insurance? Um, as of this morning, we learned that 47 million people go without insurance. The Institute of Medicine estimates an extra 18,000 um, people premature deaths each year because of the uninsured. Um, for those of you who are libertarians, some of this uninsurance is the result of market failure. Some of it is the result of moral hazard because people know they can go to an emergency room and get free treatment and thus free ride off the system. So even for you, um, the uninsured should, should be a concern. So number one, how do we make sure everyone has this, this great medicine? Um, number two is how do we pay for it? Um, we're spending 16% of our economy. That's going to go up. We're going to be spending 30% of our economy by mid-century or more. How are we going to do that, and how are we going to pay for it, organizing between consumers, employers, and the government? And then finally, and this is the question that the book centers around, how do we make it more effective? Um, there's all sorts of procedures out there where you spend a dollar and it creates $6 of benefits. I have no doubt that there are all sorts of procedures out there where you spend a dollar and you get one dollar of benefits, zero dollars of benefits, or some where people are over, you know, where the risks associated with the tests are, are larger than the problem that the test is trying to detect, and you actually get something negative from it. Um, rather than thinking of that as flat of the curve medicine, in which people are sort of stuck in the middle of the curve and we want to get them to do less health care so that they do, you know, you think of procedures, like procedure number one is worth a million dollars, number two, 999,000. Then you go down the road and you get a procedure worth you know, $500, then worth zero. You know, the flat of the curve theory is just get people to do less, and they'll do those higher value procedures, and they'll drop those, those lower value procedures. Um, what I see is much more what I'd call like all over the curve medicine. Um, you have some things that have very high value that you may not be doing enough of, some things with very low value that you're doing too much of, and we need to figure out how to get more effectiveness from our health system. Whether that results in, in lower or higher spending at the end of the day, I am um, less confident. So how can we get um, more effective health spending, and how can people make better choices. Just from my own experience, recently um, had to make some decisions involving probabilities, and my doctor refused to give me any probabilities. So I went to the Center for Disease Control website and got unconditional probabilities. Now, those are irrelevant because I know certain information about myself and certain conditional information. Now, I wrote them all down, and I used generalized method of moments and found out the conditional probabilities in my circumstances um, it took a while, and at the end of it, I still had no idea um, how to make this <laughs> health decision. Um, that is to say that a lot of what we have is, is doctors who are well-intentioned out there, who want to do what's right and don't know generalized method of moments um, or don't know, um, don't know all the available evidence. You have people trying to make these decisions. Will more informed consumers make better choices? I think that actually should be an important part of health reform. I think cost consciousness is one of the many tools we should bring to bear on this. You know, if a doctor says there's this test, it's ruling out a one in a million problem, it'll cost your insurance company $1,000, do you want to take it or not? 
um, people would think differently about that in a world where they bear more, bore more of the cost themselves. So I definitely think that's part of it. But that's not the whole solution. A big part of it is that we just, our doctors don't, our medical system don't, we as rational, you know, I think of myself as rational, um, don't know the answers to these questions. So having something along the lines of you know, evidence-based medicine, a national institute that has the same respect and, and that something like CBO has or the same type of professional is something that, that Arnold talks about in his book. You could make an enormous contribution. And how would that make a contribution? Well, it might do it in a managed care type of way. If you want to get this treatment, you don't have to pay for it because we think this is a sensible treatment for you to have. If you want to get that treatment, you do have to pay for it yourself because we think it's not a sensible treatment for you to have. But if you still want to do it, um, you know, it's your money. Go ahead. Being in a health system like that, not a sort of crude one where you have a $5,000 deductible, you pay for 100% of everything until you get there, and then above $5,000, the insurance company pays for everything. That's one model, and it assumes consumers really know a lot. Another model is something more complicated. If you want to get a preventive care treatment, um, that's covered by your insurance policy, as it is allowed to be under HSAs, although is isn't always. If you want to get something that the medical system thinks is a sound treatment, um, again, maybe that's covered and won't apply. If you want to go out on your own, um, you'll have to pay for it yourself. So a system which is almost some hybrid of managed care type elements and cost consciousness type elements is, and undergirding all of it is a bigger emphasis on, just as Arnold said, the types of cost benefits we need to make these evaluations. Um, at the end of the day, I'm far from convinced that if we did these cost benefits, as I said, that it means that health costs would go down rather than go up. Um, that's the way I think we should go. Some of um, what Arnold is talking about and some of what concerns me about it is that HSAs as an approach in general are three things. One is bearing more of the cost, which, as I said, I think should be part of the solution, but HSAs tend to do it in a very crude way. Um, as they're legislated right now, it's a sort of one-size-fits-all deductible policy specified by the government, not based on any particularly great evidence, and in fact, at variance with the RAND experiment, which is the one piece of evidence that's generally cited. Um, so one, it's bearing more of the cost. I think there are better ways to go about that, again, where the cost is different for different treatments. Um, a second thing, though, that's behind a lot of HSA proposals is reducing um, insurance or reducing um, redistribution. So right now, we have a system which, if somebody is chronically ill with diabetes and someone else isn't, the person who isn't, in effect, is paying some of the costs of the person who is. I think most Americans think that as a form of redistribution from the healthier to the sicker that we really value. It's also, if you think of it from birth, a form of insurance. If before you knew anything about your health condition, you could buy insurance, then it would be fine. We wouldn't need to worry about this. But people purchase insurance at points in time throughout their life when a lot of their health condition is known. And so unless you have pooling arrangements, whether that's an employer-sponsored system or um, a single-payer system, or alternatively, if you go the individual route, you need to figure out how to get your risk-adjusted vouchers right and pay larger vouchers to people who are sicker and smaller ones who are not, or to have underwriting rules that govern, you know, you have to offer insurance at the same price for everyone who shows up. 
a lot of HSA plans, when you look at them, end up reducing what I would call insurance and, and what might ex post be called you know, redistribution from the sick to healthy. Um, and then the final thing, which Arlen, Arnold's book mercifully does not get into, is a lot of um, HSA plans have all sorts of changes to capital taxation that have nothing whatsoever to do with health care and maybe good or bad tax policy. I'd argue they're pretty bad tax policy, but regardless, they should be kept out of the health debate. The health debate, we should be focusing on financing health care, not coming up with excuses for new sort of fancy, overly tax-favored um, savings accounts that aren't, aren't uh, paid for in any way. So that would be um, you know, my summaries. Read the book. It has a lot of insights, but then um, come up with your, your own health plan based on them. What I'd like to uh, second, or maybe third, I guess, on the panel, um, uh, the idea that uh, you should all uh, engage with Arnold's arguments. Um, they're very stimulating. I found in particular uh, the emphasis right at the beginning of the book on the relationship between the increase in supply uh, of health care and the rising price of it to be, uh, you know, putting it at the front was, was good, both because of the central role that the increase of provision has played in, in changing the share of health care and GDP, uh, but also because it tells you, it tips you off to the fact that health markets are un unusual. There aren't a lot of markets where you increase the supply and the price goes up. Uh, and I'll come back to that uh, a bit later. Um, now, uh, I want to start um, my discussion of, of the ideas by uh, highlighting uh, what I think is sort of the central um, sort of policy prescription, which is that if you were to shift uh, the financing system in healthcare from one where uh, basically, everybody who, who can afford to do so uh, pays out of pocket. Um, uh, what effect that would have on, on the way the distribution of health costs uh, is distributed. And, and basically, Arnold's point is that if you assume a world in which only the, uh, the, those, those who are very poor and generally can't afford health care uh, do not have to pay out of pocket, those who are uh, chronically sick equally do not, um, but that everybody else pays out of pocket, you would shift um, that the share of out-of-pocket expenses in healthcare would rise from 19% now uh, to 56% in the future. Uh, so that's a pretty striking and dramatic uh, proposed shift. And the question is, you know, is that good? Um, and in some respects, it clearly is good. I mean, it would, for one thing, uh, solve a lot of uh, government fiscal problems. Uh, and for another, it would take pressure off the corporate sector uh, and the problem with the pressure on the corporate sector is not merely what it does to corporate profits, but also the fact that corporations are reacting by walking away uh, from health provision, uh, and I think they will increasingly do that in the future. So those are two uh, big pluses for this shift to out-of-pocket payment. But I think it, those are not sort of sufficient uh, to clinch the deal in being supportive of this big uh, the, the, the out-of-pocket prescription. You also have to believe that when you put those dollars in individual consumers' pockets, uh, the market for healthcare is going to work better. Uh, individual consumers will put pressure and discipline on providers. Uh, and the normal mechanics of a market in which uh, consumers shopping around for the best product uh, puts pressure uh, for innovation, that those normal mechanics will, will, will basically work. Now, Clearly, there are areas where um, the market for healthcare is uh, uh, counterproductively stifled, where overregulation um, does have uh, uh, bad effects, and by removing some of that regulation, 
uh, we would have better health care at more affordable prices. Um, I happen to be reading, actually, uh, another book, um, this one by uh, Michael Cannon and Michael Tanner here at Cato, uh, which uh, cites the work of an economist at Duke University uh, uh, to come up with some fairly amazing numbers on this. He claims that if you, look at, if you do a cost-benefit analysis uh, of uh, health regulation, and so that you net out, you, you, of course there are benefits to this regulation, and you net those out against the costs, uh, he finds uh, that uh, the net cost uh, is $169 billion in 2002. Uh, and to put that in perspective, uh, this means that uh, the Americans pay, uh, without getting anything back, the net uh, cost of this regulation is bigger than what Americans pay for, for all the pharmaceuticals they consume every year. Uh, and because families are out of pocket, they've, you know, this $169 billion has ultimately come out of U.S. households, uh, these households cannot afford to spend money on other uh, safety-related uh, expenditures. They can't change the tires of their car so frequently. They cannot uh, rewire their homes before the electrical fire hits them. Um, uh, the estimate is that you get 20, 22,000 um, uh, deaths, extra deaths per year. Uh, and so, again, an amazing result. That means more deaths than are caused by uh, alcohol per year. Um, uh, so I think there's little doubt that... Um, to argue that uh, more market discipline in the health sector might be a good thing uh, is uh, eminently defensible. Um, uh, and uh, to give you an example of the kind of deregulation which would make sense to me, um, it seems that uh, when you have a, a world in which, or a country in which, in Minnesota, uh, health insurers have 60 mandates obliging them to cover various conditions, uh, whereas in Idaho, I think there are 13. Um, uh, there might be uh, some consumers who would prefer to buy the Idaho uh, insurance coverage with far fewer mandates uh, and therefore also less cost. And when you consider that some of the mandates that exist on health insurers in this country uh, include the obligation to cover wigs uh, and massage, I think there might be a lot of people who would prefer to pay less and not get some of those extra uh, coverages. Um, so uh, I'm not by any means uh, against the idea that uh, more market discipline can be introduced into the health sector. Um, but I am skeptical of the idea that uh, the way to uh, achieve that discipline uh, is to put the money uh, uh, into people's pockets and let them consume health care out of pocket. Uh, because this uh, strategy relies on the idea that the consumer, now with the dollars in her or his pocket, is going to know how to spend them uh, uh, wisely. And I think the healthcare market uh, is just too full of information asymmetries. Basically, the consumer knows so much less than the provider uh, that this strategy is uh, a very uh, risky one. Uh, Jason's example of trying to uh, uh, get his own uh, economic toolbox out to uh, figure out whether or not he should uh, go for option A or option B, the unwillingness of the doctor to provide any useful advice, uh, I think that's uh, just a microcosm of a wider problem that you see when you note that uh, the, the industry for uh, sort of uh, herbal uh, and vitamin pills, uh, which, uh, as far as I know, are not really based uh, on a lot of science, um, seems to run into the uh, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a year, people spending money um, on things that, that may probably not have much benefit. It, the, the difficulty for a consumer... Of, of consuming in an intelligent way in the healthcare market uh, is really quite considerable. Now, when one makes that claim, uh, uh, one can immediately anticipate the counterexamples that are going to be advanced. 
um, uh, LASIK or I think LASIK, LASIK surgery for eyes is one of the favorite examples of something where uh, consumers do often, I think, pay for that out of pocket. Uh, they do shop around, and the quality uh, and cost of that surgery has gone down dramatically in the last few years. Uh, uh, and, and so that ap- appears to be one where um, market, you know, consumer-driven discipline does work. Another one is cosmetic surgery. Uh, but the obvious things about both the uh, uh, market for eye surgery and for cosmetic surgery is that you just have to see it to know if it's good or not. Uh, cosmetic surgery doesn't take uh, a sort of um, a medical degree to figure out whether the result is good. And equally, after eye surgery, I think you can probably open your eyes uh, and figure out if it worked. Um, and so uh, those are kind of commodity-type uh, medical services where consumers can uh, introduce discipline. And I'm sure there are other ones which right now are being paid for um, by third-party payers and therefore being overpaid for by third-party payers, where if you introduced consumer discipline, it would have a good effect. I think probably MRIs, uh, which are probably a pretty standard procedure, cost a lot of money. Uh, and if consumers were paying for it out of their own pockets, they would be shopping around and you would see the cost of MRIs go down quite a lot. So I think this strategy can be extended, but there are limits to it because there are times when you're asking your doctor for a tricky judgmental advice uh, and you really don't have the tools uh, necessarily to figure out uh, whether or not to go for option A, B or C. And even if you really had a lot of more information, it would need to be the kind of information that involves control groups, outcome studies, uh, sort of long time lags, uh, and those necessarily are going to be about uh, some other group of patients out there and applying it to yourself uh, is going to be extremely difficult. Uh, and so I am pessimistic about the ability of a patient uh, to make a lot of uh, smart judgments, uh, particularly when you add to the fact that this is not only a complicated medical science, but also a lot of the most expensive choices and decisions uh, that a consumer makes uh, are made uh, either after an accident when uh, the, 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 the consumer, the patient is in pain or impaired or, or unconscious, or towards the end of life when, uh, similarly, one's judgment is, is impaired. And so it's not just the subject matter is complicated, it's that the condition in which you find yourself when you make these most expensive judgment calls uh, is not when you're at your best. So again, this is another reason to be uh, skeptical of the power of consumers uh, to s- discipline the market. Um, again, in, in this uh, Cato book, being a Cato book, of course, uh, is not willing to uh, give up easily uh, in this argument. Um, uh, it makes uh, a claim. It, it makes an analogy with um, the purchase of extremely complex, uh, bespoke uh, information technology um, uh, by companies, uh, and uh, quotes Michael Porter, the management uh, professor, uh, in pointing out that um, this is something where there is a market uh, for an extremely complex product, which is different. It's not a commodity. It's different from consumer to consumer, uh, and it and it works as a as a uh, unregulated market with the uh, consumer paying for that uh, complex uh, IT product. But of course, uh, it seems to me that this analogy raises more caveats than it does. Um, sort of encourage the idea of extending the analogy to, to healthcare because, first of all, companies hire extremely qualified IT experts in-house to make the purchasing decision. And secondly, if you ever talk to CEOs, you find that they complain uh, endlessly about their IT purchases and they're always saying that they're over budget, over schedule and don't perform the tasks that they were supposed to perform. Um, uh, so the bottom line is... Um, I, that I, I, I'm, I'm simply not persuaded that the idea that individuals c- 
can act as intelligent consumers uh, if you shift um, the out-of-pocket cost from 19% now as a total share of expenditure uh, to 56%. I just suspect that that is going too far, uh, that one could raise it perhaps from 19 to somewhere in between 19 and 56. Uh, I'm willing to swallow. But going all the way to 56 uh, just strikes me as putting too much faith in the power of the individual consumer. All the comments that have been made, or <laughs> the favorable ones, certainly. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, l- let me talk about two issues. First of all, the issue of the overall cost effectiveness of American health care. Uh, broadly speaking, uh, I'm going to try to do this without getting technical. But I might, might not, okay. Broadly speaking, there are two ways to look at the. Uh, cost-effectiveness of health care in the United States. You can look at what's called time series. That is the difference in health care outcomes over time. Uh, the problem with that is we don't know how much of that difference to attribute to health care and how much to attribute to other things. If you attribute a, this, these increases in longevity that Jason referred to entirely to health care, then health care has been very cost-effective. And, yeah, we, we should be proud of America uh, for spending so much on health care and, and so on. Um, so that's, that's – but you have to make that attribution that it's all to health care. My best judgment, looking at various studies and so on, is that actually very little of it is health care. Uh, I, I think overall health improvements, I would use as a rule of thumb that the, of the improvements in health – that we've had, let's say, over the last 50 years, 100 years, whatever, I would say a rule of thumb is at least three-quarters of those have nothing to do with health care per se. Uh, that things like nutrition, better knowledge, people just taking better care of themselves, um, working in jobs that are less risky, I mean, just uh, all sorts of things that are not, do not have anything to do with health care per se. But you know, I, can't, I can't absolutely quantify that number, but that, that's, that's kind of the way I think of it. At least three-quarters of it is not health care. Um, so I think that that looking at, that attributing all of the gains uh, in health to health care overstates the overall benefits. The other way of looking at it is what's called cross-section. That is, you try to take two similar populations, you look at differences in health care spending, and you see then where what kinds of differences do you see in health outcomes. And there the results are, and I don't use this phrase in the book, but I'll use it here, is that users are losers. That is, the, the group that uses the most health care resources ends up with no better outcomes, and with, uh, but with higher costs. The, the left sometimes makes the users are losers point when they compare health care spending in the U.S. and other countries and compare longevity in the U.S. and other countries. Uh, and things like that. They say, wow, the healthcare outcomes aren't any worse in France where they spend less than $3,000 a year per person on healthcare than they are in the United States where we spend 5000 a year. So that's, that's, anyway, it's a complex issue. It's discussed quite a bit in the book. Uh, so if you're interested in sorting out that issue, uh, shell, out, shell out the money uh, in the book. The other... <laughs> make one. Oh, okay. let, let me talk to the other one. And then, and the other issue is 
that they both raised was, you know, can, can consumers make the decisions? I have my own personal anecdote, uh, which I use every year in my, uh, when I teach a statistics class in high school, uh, about a doctor who felt that I needed a, uh, a test, which uh, I describe as sort of, you know, uh, must have been invented by a woman who wanted to get back at men for uh, being raped, you know, that, that, that you know, this is a way of raping males. Uh, There's that level, level of discomfort in the test. Uh, and I was upset that the doctor didn't seem to understand Bayes' theorem, uh, which is you know probability theorem, that that uh, given my age and other characteristics, the probability that I had the serious illness that this test was going to go for was actually extremely low, uh, and that the symptom that I had was very common. And so, because you, if you have a common symptom for an uncommon illness, you haven't really increased the probability of the illness very much. Um, so anyway, that, that, that's my little story on that. My my doctor thought that had never heard of Bayes' theorem and thought I was completely nuts. And kind of feeling feeling was sort of mutual actually at that point. Um, the it is difficult for consumers to make decisions. I don't believe that the problem is so much asymmetry that consumers know less than doctors. It's that doctors really do not know what's cost effective either. Nobody in the system knows what's really cost effective. And so what I propose in the book is something analogous to something that it's in the United Kingdom. They have something called the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. I'm not sure what the initials, the initials are NICE. Um, so it really needs to be studied. It's, it's a complex issue. You have to know statistics and probability because a lot of times you're doing something with a probability of success. It's not it, it will do this, it won't do that. There's a certain probability. So you have to have statistics. You have to know some economics because you have to think about it the margin. You know, uh, those of us who have reached the wonderful age of 50 have gotten the birthday present of what? Of a colonoscopy. Uh, you're supposed to have a colonoscopy when you hit age 50. And the question that I have that I'm not sure anyone's raised, oh, uh, there's no question that the colonoscopy is the gold standard for preventing colon cancer. But th there are other procedures that are less expensive that don't eliminate as much of the risk but if everyone were who was not otherwise high risk were given those procedures, at the margin, would colonoscopy be cost effective? I ask that as a question. I don't have the answer. But those are the types of questions that could be asked for cost effectiveness. So can consumers make the decisions themselves? I think at the very least, we need to get the information in front of people and get and get who's ever making the decision to have the incentive to make that decision on the basis of cost effectiveness. Uh, and you know, Jason mentioned managed care. Maybe that is a preferred solution um, for some people. But you have to, to sort of lead people to that point. And then, uh, and then I think that mechanisms will emerge by which consumers will make uh, better decisions. They'll read the equivalent of consumer reports, or if this is a government commission that's doing the cost-benefit studies, they'll read the government cost-benefit studies. They'll read, they'll get some, they'll have that information in front of them. I, I agree that if just sitting between you and the doctor, based on what the doctor knows, and the doctors don't know enough, and what you try to know, no, you cannot make the decision. But if you have this research available, then I think it is more plausible for consumers to make the decision. Okay. Um, just wanted to say a, a few things in that. Um, one is in terms of quantifying the benefits of healthcare. And by the way, I'm agnostic about whether 
if we matched a cost to effectiveness, health spending would go down or up. As I said, I suspect it wouldn't go down by a lot, but, uh, but I'm agnostic. Um, some of the time series data actually does assume that a lot of longevity is not due to health. For example, um, the, the Hall and Jones paper assumes that only 50% of the increase in longevity is due to better health insurance or better health treatments, and the other 50% is due to environmental factors and jobs and what have you, and they take accidents and murders out of their data in the first place. Um, the Murphy and Topol paper also will quantify specifically focused on heart attacks or certain demonstrable causes of death. Um, there's also a number of, in addition to the cross-sectional studies, there's the bottom-up studies, which look at individual treatments and look at whether they're cost-effective, and most of those have tend to, found, t- tend to find that the treatments are cost-effective. Um, but definitely we have, as a, a, and I would agree with Arnold, sort of all-over-the-curve medicine, but it wouldn't be that we are clustered and sort of doing every single treatment up to sort of 10 treatments past where we should be. And you just need to get those 10, 10 less. Um, second, I, I completely agree with Arnold that it's not just consumers that are irrational. It's none of us have this information. We want better information. I think once we had that better information, we'd want something more flexible about how to implement it than just consumers um, making a decision. And finally, this isn't all about health. It's also about health and it's also about insurance. So think of fire insurance. Um, fire insurance is a, a good thing to have for your house. It is not going to make your house any healthier in the sense that your house is no less likely to burn down because you have fire insurance than if you don't. Even if it has no effect at all, it's still good to have so that you don't lose you know, 200000 500000 $10 million um, when your house burns down. Um, Amy Finkelstein's research at MIT has comes up with a number of findings that sort of confounds everyone on every side of this debate. One, she finds um, that the introduction of Medicare took a lot of people that didn't have insurance, gave them insurance, and they were not any healthier as a result. So that's confounding, number one. Number two, that as people got more insured, they spent more on health care as a result of it, for all the reasons Arnold said. But then number three, she does a utility-based welfare analysis, finds out that people are better off, and they're better off because they're, in a sense, for the same reason that somebody with fire insurance is better off. Even if their house is no less likely to burn down, they're not going to have to pay um, this very big cost because of it. So again, bringing the insurance back into this, not just the the health outcomes, is a really important um, part of it. Any response? No? Well, then we'll uh, be happy to take questions. Uh, first hand that shot up was Dr. Marshall's. Hello, hello. Can you hear? Now it's on. I'm Dr. Joseph Marshall. I'm a gynecologist here in Washington, D.C. for over 40 years. And we've listened for an hour today talking about economics and talking about numbers, and we didn't really touch the subject. And the subject that has everything to do with the cost of medical care is medical malpractice. Now, maybe you're tired of hearing the subject, but I'm not. Because being in the trenches for 40 years of practicing gynecology, I have had to learn how to practice legal medicine. I've had to learn how to no longer practice uh, medicine based upon the art of medicine as opposed to the technology of medicine. Is it any wonder that in 1970s and 1980s, women had a cesarean section rate of 5% and now it's close to 40%? 
Is it any wonder that little Johnny gets hit in the head with a soccer ball and then he goes to the emergency room and instead of a Tylenol, they do an MRI? Is it any wonder that a patient comes to me with a little discomfort in her breast and the examination is totally normal, but yet I am forced to get a mammogram and, and send her to a, 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 a specialist for an examination? We are practicing legal medicine. So when you're talking about costs of how to control, if you don't give us the chance to practice the art of medicine, all of this is nonsense. Now, I disagree, Dr. Kling, with what you said about cost-benefit. If you gave physicians the chance to practice medicine the way we were taught to, we wouldn't do that unnecessary sonogram. We wouldn't order an unnecessary mammogram. We wouldn't honor it. We would not do it an unnecessary MRI. And as long as we don't have any tort reform, and as long as we are at the mercy of covering our ass, nothing is going to be done. Thank you. Um, I think that um, mal malpractice is one of the factors that's driving the extravagant use of medical procedures that have high costs and low benefits. And part of the recommendation in the book for this, for doing studies, cost-benefit studies, is that if you had, as I propose, a commission that was reporting the results of these studies, that it might provide a better basis for, uh, for doctors to be able to defend not sending somebody for an MRI. So if, if, if a commission says, this is the standard protocol for this situation, and the doctor follows the standard protocol, then that could conceivably be used as a defense for mal, uh, in a malpractice case. So that, that, anyway, so I, uh, my point is that the book does not completely ignore that issue, but I, I don't think it is the only issue uh, in health care. I think there are a lot of cultural factors that are going on in addition to malpractice that, are, that lead to extravagant use. Just quickly add that um, it seems to me that you know there are a lot of moving parts in the healthcare debate, and the art of sanity in policy making uh, is to pick um, options which uh, look more like win-wins than win-complicated. And I, I would regard medical malpractice reform as win-win uh, more than I would regard making people pay out of pocket, which I think raises all these other complicated issues. So I would tend to agree with you uh, and think that that's more sort of low-hanging fruit reform uh, than a radical proposal uh, to, to re rethink the whole way that we finance medical costs. Um, this woman in the back, or the second row in the back. If you could, I, I know Dr. Marshall, so I was able to identify him, but if you could please identify yourself before your question. We'd appreciate yes. it. Thank you. Uh, I'm Laura Dummett from the National Health Policy Forum. One issue that I haven't heard you address that I think um, both relates to the increase in the volume and intensity of services, as well probably um, some of the malpractice issues that have been mentioned before, is um, the role of the physician and providers and the fact that income and revenues are made by providing more uh, and more intensive services rather than less. So it's, there's always going to be a situation of imperfect knowledge. Um, 
I doubt if there will ever be equations that can tell you exactly what to do when um, because people are people and have multiple things wrong with them and so on. So, but in a situation that, and the healthcare environment we have in this country where providers of all kinds directly financially benefit from providing more services and more complex ones, how do you um, get spending under control? Okay, so the question, I'll phrase the question is, uh, you know, in a world of fee-for-service medicine, you know, what is that, you know, are there, are there other ways of compensating doctors that would be better in terms of, you know, produce better results? Um, my guess is there probably are. I, d I don't think I can come up with the perfect compensation system for the, for the reasons that, that you came up with. I think our, I will say that I think our fee-for-service system and our misconception of, of insurance as insulation are closely tied to one another. They, they grew up together historically, and they're closely related to one another. So I think part of the process of getting a different compensation system is changing the uh, changing from insulation to real insurance but it's a um, um, that is there, there certainly are alternatives alternative ways to compensate physicians but I don't think we'll get get out we'll be able to to change them really until we change our notion of insurance which was really designed to support the fee for service I think that the question points to another low-hanging fruit reform which is that one could split off more effectively um, the doctor who provides advice on what procedure or test you should have and the, the entity that profits from you having that procedure. And right now there are some procedures that can be provided to you by a, a, a clinic uh, in which the doctor owns uh, an ownership stake or even within his clinic, I think in the case of chemotherapy treatment, um, and those sorts of conflicts of interest where the advisor is also the provider are the classic things that you go after in uh, financial sector regulation where the advisor um, at least has to disclose if they are selling you a product from which they themselves will profit. I think splitting off the advice from the provision uh, is the obvious way to go there. Um, way in the back, woman on the aisle. Could we get her a functioning microphone, please? I'm a cardiologist, and go. I'm here to ask you, Dr. Kling, how do you make the cut point for de determining cost-benefit um, analysis in terms of, for instance, a $2.50 bottle of generic aspirin will reduce heart attacks by 23%. In the, li in the um, literature, it also states that a $20,000 implantable defibrillator is cost-effective. So who's going to decide the, the cut points in using this high technology? The question is, uh, you know, how do we make decisions on cost-benefit analysis? I guess I'll have to refer you to uh, at least a, a couple chapters in the book uh, on that. There's a chapter on dollars and decisions which goes through the complicated steps involved, and then the chapter recommendations where I end up recommending a commission that includes medical people, uh, statisticians, and economists, because all those skills are necessary to, uh, to 
do the analysis of medical protocols. Down here on the aisle. Paul Kitchen, I'm the Executive Vice President of the Medical Society of Virginia. Uh, I want to ask a question. How important is the debate about tra price transparency to a lot of this? Because that's one thing that uh, is a, it's pretty unique to medicine. You don't know, nobody typically knows what it is. And I'd just like to use by way of reference, going back to some of the questions about cost effectiveness, uh, some of the recent information about uh, prostate disease and what you do or don't do, the different options. It would seem to me uh, the, the the key missing component there that would be important is what's the cost, the actual cost of some of those different procedures. And I think most people don't even consider that as they can make that analysis. And it may be an important piece to it. Okay, you you brought up an issue of that. Well, people often don't see the cost, so it's not transparent to them. And I think that, again, goes back to this insulation, that, pe that so many people are insulated from so much of the cost. And um, I would agree that just you know, getting that information out there is important, and then you have to also uh, give people a reason to make use of it. Um, gentlemen uh, in the second row. Um, in the back. I work for uh, Congressman Towns from New York. I'm his health policy advisor. We sit on the subcommittee on health on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Um, I, I, I guess my reaction to all this is this is why you don't leave, leave health policy to economists. Um, I, 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 while I can understand and I do on a daily basis economics of health care. What we're really missing is here is the fact that every American that's living now uh, d deserves quality health care. We represent a district that's 67 percent African-American, 17 percent Latino, uh, uses uh, the emergency room 50 percent of its time as its only source of health care. Um, and I, I really think that um, while I agree uh, that we need economists in the discussion, in the dialogue. Um, actually, you're not very much in the dialogue now, I mean, to be totally frank about it. I, 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 I mean, you're not informing the decisions in Congress very much. I mean, I, I don't see you guys very, you know, stomping for uh, under, the under, the med medically uninsured communities and helping people to get health. I mean, I, mean I, I think this is a very nice theoretical discussion, but in, in fact, um, right now, there are a lot. You know, obviously, it's a political year, but there are a lot of big things in Congress right now that you guys are not informing. So I'm challenging you in one way to get to get more realistically into into the battle on on healthcare, not just economics. Economics is one thing. Let's talk about best practices. Let, let's talk about quality care. I mean, those are all things that are that have to be put into into the loop, particularly in a district uh, such as ours, uh, um, where we're basically medically undersured and and use the emergency room as our only source of health care. Um, Do the economists want to respond? I'll say a little bit about that. Um, I mean, look, I think you need to think on multiple tracks. Um, the most pressing problem, from my perspective, is 47 million uninsured people, and I'd be happy to come up with second, third, or fourth, or fifth best solutions to that if we can do it faster rather than waiting to get it you know, done in some economist paradise way. And 
you know, some of them are quite simple, like expanding Medicaid to 100% of the family poverty line for everyone, you know, with or without children, or 225% of the poverty line, or, or what have you, um, are some of the lower hanging fruit. But I think it's also important to have a broader discussion about where you want the health system to go. And in particular, the biggest question we're going to face is, you know, it's titled Henry Aaron's book, which is, can we say no? And who's the person who's going to say no? At some point, not all health care is a necessity. And we know that because we know that different parts of the United States provide extremely different levels of health care. And we know that because different countries provide extremely different. There is a certain amount of health care that is consumed that um, you know can't be described as a necessity. Whether that is good to consume or bad to consume, that's another question. But at some point, um, you need to say no, and there are basically two models for it. One is individuals saying no. You know, I'm paying for this myself. I don't want to pay for this test. Um, that's what what Arnold is more fond of, and I think that's part of it. Um, and then one of it is um, people saying no to you. Is it, you know, is it whether it's your doctor or your insurance company or something along the lines of managed care saying, you know, you can't do it. Um, and I think that plays an important role, I think, you know, both for the reasons we talked about before and also just even the fact that a lot of health spending is among the highest cost patients and is thus above the deductible. And so you need somebody other than the patient to say no because you're not going to have them have financial exposure. Um, so I think those are, you know, I guess those are, I think those are important questions. Okay, next question. Down here in front. Jean Montgomery. Uh, the thing that interests me is a more micro-level uh, effect of the market. For instance, uh, let's take something like type 2 diabetes, where in order to treat this disease efficiently, you would need to determine as soon as possible whether a person has it or not, and then you would need to structure the incentives more strongly than we probably have uh, to make sure that whatever the person can control, they do terms of exercise, diet, whatever. Um, I wonder if you could chat a bit about the effect of your proposals on uh, a disease of that sort, which has some, can have some very, very expensive sequelae. Okay. I guess my, my first thought, on, okay, the question is, you know, what, you know, how would you want to shift the incentives on something like type 2 diabetes? There's no question with, with diabetes that the discipline of the patient is a major factor in the cost and um, course of the disease. And I suspect that there's, there's not much that the economic environment necessarily can do about that discipline, that a lot of it is just internal. You know, some people have the discipline to cope with that disease well, and some people do not. Um, so I, I, I don't want to, so I guess I, I wouldn't want to make any extravagant promise that somehow putting more of the cost on the individual uh, is going to lead to the, to the right decision. I think that's, that's a case where um, you know, people with maybe a more paternalistic mindset than I walk into it might, might, might have better solutions to how, how to address it. Okay, last question. 
um, all the way in the back. Thank you. Um, I think we might have earlier heard a good argument as to why health policy shouldn't be left to Congress as well. Um, I, I have uh, perhaps this is a subtle question. Uh, the way the, the way uh, healthcare payment payments for healthcare services are made today is that Medicare determines a a, 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 a putative cost for each service and then makes a payment using a formula based on that cost. And approximately half the health insurance companies also make their payments as a percentage of what Medicare would have paid had that service been provided to a Medicare patient. So since we have cost figuring directly into the payment function, to what extent do you think healthcare services are overpriced because there isn't an incentive for providers to figure out a way to provide that same service, say an MRI, at a lower cost? Okay, so the question is, you know, to what extent is our system for paying for health care uh, contributing to uh, higher prices in health care? I think that, you know, the example that I believe Sebastian cited of LASIK surgery where the competitive price is going down rather than up uh, is certainly an interesting example. Um, in most industries, we think of technology as leading to lower prices for consumers, and it's only in healthcare where it seems to lead to higher prices. And so that raises the question of whether if you had consumers paying more from their, their healthcare out of pocket, that this type of thing you observe in LASIK, you might observe more across the board. Uh, I assume in, in the analysis I do in the book, I assume no, nothing of that sort. I, make, I assume that, that uh, there is no market benefit uh, of lower prices in, in health care, just because I didn't want to make an assumption that, that people w would have to argue with it. What do I believe? I actually believe that if we were to increase the proportion of medical spending paid for out of pocket, so that we're all, so that the very poor and the very sick are getting paid for, and everyone else is not. Uh, that if we move to that, I think the pressure would be to have prices more closely reflect cost, and moreover to practice medicine in ways that reduce cost. But um, so I, I believe that 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 would happen, but I don't want to make an estimate that then then I have to defend about how large that effect might be. Um, I think I might have thought a little bit more like Arnold before we've witnessed what's happened with HM, the introduction of HMOs into Medicare. And whether you think it's sort of a, a problem or a good thing, it certainly has not lived up to any of the hopes that a lot of economists would have had for it. Part of the problem is that health insurance companies can make money two ways. One is by lowering their cost, you know, providing angioplasties at you know, uh, at the right amount and to people who are appropriate and not to people who are inappropriate. The second is by getting a healthier set of people who aren't going to need those angioplasties. And a model in which you have a complete individual market with no risk-adjusted vouchers, with no um, pooling mechanisms like the employer-sponsored system or single-payer or mandatory insurance or underwriting, any of those, a lot of your incentive to make more money is to find the people who aren't going to need the treatment in the first place. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Some of them even go under the heading of you know, encouraging exercise. And your health insurance plan is a really good way not to get people who are going to be healthier because they're exercising, but people who are healthier because they're people who exercise. Um, and, and 
and underwrite the people who show up at your health insurance plan. And I think a lot of these um, problems come about at the level of pooling, and that's something that we need to think through in addition to the, the cost consciousness that this book does talk about. Thank you very much. I want to thank our uh, speakers and, and our author for uh, coming uh, to talk to us today, and I'd like to encourage you all to join us upstairs for lunch. Uh, Dr. Kling is going to be sitting down at a table, I understand, and uh, signing copies of his book. Uh, if you have any more questions for him or the speakers, you can uh, talk to them up there. Thank you.